All right, take your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. If you're not familiar with how to get around your Bible, this one's really easy. Go right to the front. All right, that's where we're going to start. That's actually, you're, you're in. You came the right Sunday because here's where we begin with the story, with absolutely everything. Last week, we talked about the reliability of Scripture and why this is a book worth exploring. Today, we actually get into the story, and I want to call attention to a couple of folks. First of all, the people up in the booth who never get any attention unless something goes wrong. But there is a truckload of slides this morning, uh, and you're not going to hear, and I'm probably not going to be able to communicate effectively without that, and it's always the unseen hand that provides that, so I want to say thank you to them. I also want to, and, and by the way, if you want those slides, uh, yeah, please, yeah, that's okay. And if you want those slides, Miller at covenant-mail.com, just say, I want the slides, and every Sunday you'll get everything that you see up here. Uh, several folks were taking snapshots last week, uh, afraid they're going to miss something. We don't want you to miss anything, so if you need the slides, they're yours. It's all original with, well, not the story's not original with me, but the material's original with me. It's mine. It's you, I'm well to share it. Uh, Miss Terry's up here with me again. Take a bow, Miss Terry. And um, she's going to be with me off and on, uh, with us off and on throughout this series to kind of accentuate some major parts of the story. Uh, what she's going to paint today will give you a visual for what sets the stage for everything else. And that is this idea of the story. So starting where Scripture starts in Genesis chapter 1, where do we do with this? What do we do? What's the way to begin something like this? No matter who you are, there are four questions in the world that absolutely everybody asks themselves. If you've lived for any significant length of time, you have asked yourself these four questions. Number one, where do I come from? What's my origin? Number two, what's my purpose? Why am I here? Am I here by chance? Am I here by accident? Or am I the only weirdo in the room that has ever thought, why was it that I was born in the 20th century and so late in the 20th century that if I live the average lifespan of a man my age being born in my time, my life will crest the mid-21st century before I go to meet Jesus? Why did God put me at this place and this time? Why does God, God have me here? What, and for some of you, that's, there's some really good things happening, and you're wondering, why in the world? Why me? And some of you, maybe some really bad things are happening. You're like, why me? And, and all of that's wrapped up in this idea what's my purpose right where did i come from what's my purpose number three why is everything so jacked up why is everything messed up why why is my life messed up why do i do things i don't want to do why do i get frustrated with myself why do i get frustrated with my spouse with my kids why do i sometimes hate my job why do i get depressed when i watch the news why is it that i can see both beauty and and raw ugliness and evil sometimes in the very same person why, what's wrong with everything? What's wrong with everybody? And then ultimately, the, the final question is, is there a solution? No matter who you are, what your background is, what your faith background is, if you've lived for any significant length of time, you've asked those four questions. Maybe not in so many words, but those four questions hop up in your mind. And every philosophy, every religious tradition under the sun seeks to answer those questions. And each and every one of those philosophies and religious traditions has a story. All right. For example, if you go to Buddhism... You can read some things about Buddha's life. There's some conflicting um, evidence about how he lived and, and, and what the circumstances of his life were. But, but ultimately, he produced documents, principles, teachings, doctrines that now form the body that is Buddhism. But, but really, that body that is Buddhism isn't connected at all to the story of Buddha, or at least it's not solely dependent on it. Even if we were to, to come to the historical and archaeological conclusion that this man never existed, Buddhism could still exist on its own. Islam, likewise. 
uh, began uh, and is embodied ultimately, many, many other uh, resources besides this one, but it's embodied ultimately in the Quran as Muslims, faithful Muslims all over the world believe was given to us by the prophet Muhammad. And there's conflicting reports about Muhammad's life and background and who he was and who he wasn't and how all of this came to be and the various hadith that, that come about that interpret his life. And, and, but if you read the Quran, if you've ever read the Quran, none of that story is there. It's a lot of commands. It's one of the things that makes the book a little hard to read, a bit cumbersome. A lot of commands, a lot of instruction, a lot of didactic teaching, but, but not a lot, well, really nothing of the story of how this came to be. And if you look at every other world religion, you'll see that similarity. It has a story, but the story doesn't always connect with the teaching. And that's what sets the faith that we're about to explore apart. Christianity, as I said last week, doesn't just have a story. It is a story. Christianity has painted itself into a corner in that regard. If our story isn't true, then our faith isn't valid. If you were here last week, you heard... Uh, a lot, hopefully, of why I think it's valid and why our story is true. But what is that story? We're the only people on the planet, relative to the rest of the philosophies and the religions in the world, that say our faith actually is a story. And when you look at the first three chapters of Genesis, here's the great thing. You see not just the beginning of that story, but you see the entirety of the background of the Christian faith, and you see the beginnings of this story unfolded. Okay? It's been rightly said that if you, were, if you were trapped on a deserted island in the middle of the South Pacific and you had nothing else with you except for the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, you'd actually have enough Scripture to teach you everything you know, need to know in order to follow Christ. And we're going to see that as we unpack these first three chapters this morning. That's what we're going to see. We see the beginning of the story. Where did I come from? What's my purpose? Why is the world so jacked up? Is there a solution? Followers of Jesus throughout history have answered all four of those questions with these things. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. All right? Now, that's not where did I come from, creation, what's my purpose, fall. Your purpose is not to sin, okay? That's not what that means. But it means that those four movements of the story in Scripture provide the ultimate answer to all four of those questions. And all four of those movements are given to us in the first three chapters of Genesis. So let's move through that together, beginning with creation. Where do I come from? And the Bible simply tells us in the first four words in the opening line, in the beginning, God. Right? Four words in English. It took four to say what the Hebrews could say in three. Uh, but nonetheless, here's what we have. In the very beginning, God. So this is where our story starts. It begins with one who had no beginning. He was in the beginning, but he had no beginning. And he has always existed. There's never been a time, Scripture teaches us, when God hasn't existed. And the first three words of Scripture, at least in Hebrew, four in English, tell us that everything we see and everything that we don't see and everything that exists, including ourselves, finds its origin in the person of God. One. Supreme being. And that stands in contrast to a vast array of ideas that have been thrown around our world for thousands of years. Animism, for example, which teaches that the God spirit or the spirit of the divine is in me, it's in you, it's in the chair you're sitting in, it's in this stand, it's in all things living and dead. It stands in contrast 
to pantheism, which says that God isn't separate from His creation, but in fact God is the sum total of the entirety of the created order. Everything is God. It also stands in contrast to polytheism. That's a mindset that we're going to encounter very early as we move through the story of the Bible, particularly when we get to the the Israelites in Egypt. The Egyptians were polytheists. They believed there wasn't just one God, there were multiple gods, and they were in charge of, created, and oversaw various parts of the cosmos. All of that is answered in Scripture with a no. None of that is true. There is one God. He is set apart from His creation to the extent that His creation doesn't exist independent of Him. And He existed before His creation. Here's something that may blow your mind. Prior to the created order, where was God? And the technically correct answer is, God was nowhere. But He still was. So powerful is He, so infinite is this being in which you and I find our origins that He doesn't need anywhere to be to exist. That's our God. And He created all other things. Everything else finds its origin in Him. All the order in the world, all of the goodness in the world, everything there finds its origin in God. And that God created all these things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the Hebrew word bara, which is the word for create. It's only used of God. Only God can do that. Terry's up here doing a far better job than I would do painting. If it was me, it'd be stick men. Right? But, but no matter how good of an artist you are, you will never do that. Only God can do that. Because in order for her to do what she's doing right now, we had to go to the art store, we had to buy canvas, we had to buy paints, we had to have some raw materials. To bara is by default to create out of nothing. Alright, so nothing existed. God calls something into existence. Then He begins to form that which He created. Only God does this. And what's interesting is as you look at the first chapter of Genesis and how it unfolds, you see something of the order and the beauty and the purpose and the majesty of this creation that we see and even the things that we don't see. On day one, he said, let there be light, and there was light. And he separated the light from the darkness, and the darkness he called night, the light he called day. On day two, he created the sea and the sky. The upper waters from the lower waters, some of your translations might say. He separated the two so that there was an expanse in the sky, that big blue. Well, it's not so blue today, is it? But one day, it will be blue again. Hang in there, West Virginians. It's coming. And you can look, and you can see that great and that grand expanse of sky and the sea that was separated on day two. And then on day three, he separates the sea from the land. So now, we have light, we have sea and sky, we have land, but it's not complete yet. In the last three days of creation, we start to see the order and the beauty and and the justice and the balance and everything else begin to come about. Because on day four, now the sun, the moon, and the stars, why are they given? To govern and to house the light that He created on day one. On day five, the birds and the fish to fill the sea and the sky that He had created three days earlier. On day two and on day six, animals to fill the land that He had created three days earlier. On day three, God is an orderly God. He is a God of order. He is a God of justice. He is a God of goodness. He is a God of beauty. And He creates all of these things in absolute perfection and then adds a crown jewel to that created order. He says in the latter part of Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and they will rule. What's my purpose? To rule. That's it. 
That's what God originally designed you to do. It's what He originally designed me to do. Over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in His own image. There's the authority. Right? You're created to rule. Who are you? Well, I'm a God image bearer. Who are you? That's my right. It's stamped on me, and it's given to me by my Creator. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And so this image of God gets expressed in a number of ways, and we see that as Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden prior to the fall. First of all, relationally, there's a unity between us and our Creator, even in the present world, but it certainly existed in the world prior to the fall, a a, a unity that doesn't exist between Him and the animal kingdom or Him and the plant kingdom. We have an ability to commune with our Creator in a way that your dog and your cat never can and, and was never supposed to. Relationally, there's something special about humanity. Functionally, there's something special about humanity. We were created to rule in God's stead over the rest of creation. Kings and queens, that's what, that was your destiny. That was my destiny. How do we rule over all of these things? And then thirdly, substantively. Substantively. We reflect the image of God. There's just something different about us. Sometimes people get shamed when they start thinking about their origins. Maybe you grew up in a a really rough home. Maybe your past includes some things that are kind of shady, and there's some shame associated with that. Maybe it's things you didn't necessarily have anything to do with. You haven't done anything wrong, but you just got, there's some things in your past. There's people who've been victims of sexual assault, for example. There's a lot of shame there. Um, sometimes you, you wonder, where are my origins? And it, when those things happen in your life, whether they're your fault or whether they're not your fault, oftentimes they'll, they'll mess you up in terms of your origin, where you came from. And if you lose your roots, you lose everything, right? Oftentimes I get invited to go and speak at a pastor's conference or a missions conference, and I'll, I'll join a lineup of other preachers. And occasionally I'll follow some dude that wants to cite his preacher lineage. All right, he's going to get up in the pulpit and he's going to talk about his daddy was a preacher and his granddaddy was a preacher and his uncles on both sides were preachers. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. That's well. But I usually just follow that up by getting up and saying, man, I'm really thankful for those who have that kind of rich lineage. I come from a long line of moonshiners and redneck potato farmers. That's my background. That's who I am. Okay. Uh, and some of that, I'm, yeah, I'm not terribly proud of. Some of it, uh, I, I really don't care if you like it or not. It's just who I am, right? That's who I am. But oftentimes there's shame associated with our background. That should be true of absolutely none of us who recognize this special relationship that we have with our God. You are created in the image and likeness of God. That's your origin. Your origin, described here, reveals you and me as kings and queens of the created order, ruling in God's stead because we have His image stamped on us. That's our purpose. That's our destiny. So we express this relationally, we express it functionally, we express it substantively. What does that mean? It means several things. Number one, your existence all by itself reflects the glory of God. That should set you free. Stop trying to find your identity and your worth and your value in your work or in your marriage or in your children or, or, or in your real, other kinds of relationships or even in what you do here at the church, here at Covenant Church. Stop trying to find your identity in that nonsense. You're only going to legitimately find an identity that will set you free in one place, and that is to recognize the same thing that a guy like me needs to recognize. 
I've been having trouble with my throat. I had that, I had some acid reflux stuff in the fall. Finally got over that, and then there was this head cold. And so, uh, if you were here for the 11 o'clock last week, you had to listen to Marge Simpson's sister preach, right? Because it was just bad. And there's that side of me that gets anxious. It's like, oh my God, this is, this is like occupational hazard. God, don't take my voice. Don't take my voice. Here, I want you to hear me. If God takes my voice and I have to resign, I still reflect the image of God. If there's an accident and I lose my legs and all four of my limbs, by my mere existence, I reflect the glory of God. And that's true of you as well. Stop trying to find your identity in other stuff. Your roots are in a God who was here before anything else, who called you into existence, who loves you as in a way that nobody else does. We're going to see that as we move through this narrative as well. But your existence all by itself brings glory to God. Let that set you free. Here's the second thing we learn. Everyone is worthy of dignity and respect. Everybody. That's why we don't tolerate racism here. That's why we don't tolerate xenophobia, homophobia. We don't, into- we don't tolerate stuff where people, where there's actual hatred. I'm not talking about calling sin, sin. I'm talking about the way that we relate to other human beings created in the image of God. Way too many people, particularly if you're part of any Protestant tradition, tend to start our story with the fall. People are falling in sin, and they need redemption, and that's absolutely true. But the problem with that is if you start the story there, that's the first thing you see in people. And there's this over-critique of that before starting the story where the Bible actually starts the story. I don't care what somebody's involved in. I don't care what choices they make. I don't care what they believe or what their background is. If a human being walks through that door, the image of God walks through that door. And everybody's worthy of dignity and respect and love and embrace. Number three. Number three. Thank you. Human life and dignity are the more important values than anything else. Sorry, that was a little bit grammatically incorrect, wasn't it? If you're a grammar Nazi, I'm sorry. But human life and dignity are the ultimate value. They're more important than my convenience. So my my aging parents are worthy of life and dignity. And that value is more important than any inheritance I might get out of them, just to give you an example. When we talk about abortion around here, we're not doing that because we've got some political agenda. We're doing it because we believe that it's murder. And that when you murder a human being created in the image of God, you're not just murdering the person. You are striking a blow. You are shaking the fist, your fist in the face of a sovereign God. Abortion is not about babies. It's about the image of God. The image of God. Because His image stamped on that human life means more than anything else. And then finally, we rule for the benefit of a created order that belongs to God. So we were put here as kings and queens. Okay, So, two sides to this. Here's where I make everybody mad. We're going to get into vegetarianism and stuff in a few weeks when we get to the Noah passage. But I'll go ahead and say this. It's okay to eat meat. It's okay to kill animals and eat meat. It really is. Now, if that really bothers you, you don't have to do that. That's fine. You can be a vegetarian and still belong to Jesus. That absolutely can happen. And you might even live a little longer than the rest of us. And that's okay. I don't, I don't, I'm not offended by that. I'm not offended by you. In fact, I thank God for you because you keep the price of steak low for people like me. And, and that's okay. That's okay. So, on the one hand, the, the created order was put here for us to use. On the other hand... It doesn't belong to us. 
Okay? So we got some animal rights people in the building, and some of y'all need to listen to them. Because those animals that get mistreated, it's not about the animals. Just like abortion is not about the babies. This is about God's glory and God having put us as in the place of stewards over his creation. We rule as regents, but it doesn't ultimately belong to us. Okay? Ecology, taking care of the environment, pollution, those kind of things are Christian concerns. It doesn't mean we got to hop on every environmentalist bandwagon that somebody says we have to jump onto, but it does mean those are concerns. We don't just dismiss those things because our political persuasion or whatever else tells us that we don't have to, or because we have some perverted view of the created order that leads us to believe that's fine, we can pollute, we can make a mess, and that'll be fine. This planet belongs to God. And God put us here to steward it. God put us here to reflect His glory in all of these things. So then the question is, what happened? What in the world happened? That takes us to the fall. Not even through chapter 2 yet, and the serpent comes along. Actually, he comes in chapter 3. But he comes in response to this command. And the Lord God commanded the man, put him in the garden, saying, You may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Here you go, Adam. Here you go, Eve. Everything you ever want. All the satisfaction you ever wanted. All the fulfillment that you, your heart could ever desire. There's one rule. Don't eat that. And then in chapter 3, the serpent comes, who is identified in later scriptures as our enemy, Satan. He still exists. He's still on the prowl. He still trolls the garden of your life. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the way he did this with Eve is he simply said the exact opposite of what God said. You will not surely die. Now, this didn't start this way. It actually started this way. Did God say this? That way too often is the way that we fall headlong into temptation and sin and we make a mess of our lives. Because we read God's Word. We know what God says. But then we go, eh, it's all right. God will understand. God was a, That's the serpent coming to you saying, did God really say, right? Did, did did God really say that I shouldn't be addicted to alcohol and drugs? Yeah, you shouldn't make your body a slave to anything. Did God, did God really say that, that it's a sin against my wife for me to look at porn every once in a while? Yeah, it's called lust. And everywhere it's mentioned in the Bible, it's a sin. Did God really say that I got to, that, that my anger is an issue and might be indicative of murderous heart? Yeah, that's like, Jesus Himself actually said that. Did God really? And, and the problem begins when that question then moves to an outright declaration that runs contrary to what God's word says. You will not surely die. And this is Satan's word to Eve and to her husband Adam, who's standing right there. Listen, this isn't going to happen. Nothing bad's going to happen. Let me tell you what's going on. God knows that in the day you eat of that, you'll know everything He knows. You'll have all the resources he has, and you won't need him anymore. That makes you feel good, right? I mean, the only thing better than having a God over me who gives me everything my heart ever desires is if I can become God. And then I sit on my own throne, and everything is great. Your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That serpent still exists. He still trolls the garden of our lives, seeking to deceive us. And his chief tools are misdirection and deception. Those are his tools. 
He speaks lies. He seeks to fill our minds with doubt and our hearts with pride. And on this note, he succeeds spectacularly. He succeeds. And here's where everything starts to go wrong. Chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, I know what some of you are already thinking. Joel, you, got, you can't be serious. Every war that I see that goes on. Joel, I've been to Kenya with our team, those, those street kids over there that are suffering. Joel, I, I've, I've been over to Vietnam with, with, with your wife, and I've seen... Some of the things that happen, the suffering, the poverty. I see, I see it here. I see the drug addiction. I, I see crime going through the roof. I see horrible things in the world. Are you seriously going to tell me that God allowed all of that to happen just because somebody ate a piece of fruit they weren't supposed to eat? No, I'm not going to tell you that. See, the act of rebellion, every act of rebellion, in this case it's eating a piece of fruit that wasn't supposed to be eaten. But it's not about the fruit, people. Every act of rebellion has a corresponding disposition of the heart. All right? Let me show this to you. 1 John chapter 2 says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, it is from the world. Do you see those three things? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. you see that in the garden? You do, don't you? Take a look at this. The desires of the flesh. She saw, she saw it was good for food. Well, I bet that really tastes good. Desires of the eyes. It was a delight to the eye. It really looked good. The pride of life. It desired to make one wise. Maybe I won't need God anymore if I do this. And this is the heart of what it means to be a sinner. Every sin, every atrocity, everything that is wrong with our world can be traced back to these three things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And all of that finds its origin in this very first act of willful rebellion against God. So sin isn't just about eating a piece of fruit you're not supposed to eat. Here's what happened in the garden. Sin, at its heart, is the desire to take God's place by putting your own desires above His glory. It is the arrogance of viewing ourselves as superior to our Creator, the defiance of the finite against the infinite. Is it starting to make a little more sense now? Lust of the flesh. Well, that's something I, you know, God said not to touch it, but that's something I really want. I bet that really tastes good. It really looks good. This serpent tells me that I'll have everything that, that God would want me to have anyway if I'll just eat it, and then I won't even need Him anymore. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, of the eyes, pride of life, wadded up together, results in a willful act of rebellion. Sometimes we, we, we present the fall in the garden almost like the moral equivalent of tripping over your own shoelaces. Like, oops. We brought home these Hanna-Barbera cartoon videos for our kids years ago because they were Bible stories. And we thought, well, let's, let's sit down let's take a look. Let's see what this looks like. We put the first one in, and it was about creation and fall. And, and it was like the serpent cast a spell over Adam and Eve and they took a bite, and then all of a sudden the spell was removed, and Adam goes, Oh my gosh! We ate the forbidden fruit! And, and Amy and I looked at each other almost simultaneously, and we said, we got to get this out of our house. Like, this is nonsense. That's not the fall. The fall is not an accident. The fall is not you making a mistake. The fall is you gave God the finger. 
The infinite being in all the universe. That's what makes this so serious. So when you question hell, when you question fire and brimstone, when you question whether or not it's right for God to send people there, you haven't thought this through. This is the problem. We have shaken our fist from the time of Eden in the face of God. We have trampled His law under our feet. Every one of you has done that. I have done that. We are guilty. We have believed the lies of the serpent. We have filled our minds with doubt. We have filled our hearts with pride. And God is right to damn me for that. That's right. And we see all of that in the garden. All of this finds its origins right here in human history. The defiance of the finite over the ultimate. And it brings horrible things in our life. First of all, it brings shame. The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. There's something here, right? Right? Yeah, was there a change? Yeah, Satan said there'd be a change. He didn't say it'd feel like this. What's going on? Now, now I've got to sew something together. I've got to cover myself up. There's, there's fear. God comes down in the cool of the day, and He's not met by Adam and Eve any longer. And He says, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, what? I hid because I was afraid. And there is shame and there is fear because there's guilt. The Lord sends him out of the garden. What did you do? What did you do? And notice the blame shifting that takes place. Did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to eat of? Did you disobey me? Did you? What's Adam's response? Well, Lord, the woman... We've been, ladies, I'm sorry. We've been doing that ever since. And I'm on behalf of all men everywhere, I apologize. Okay. All right. The woman, notice this, that you gave me, that this is open rebellion, people. That, and that, that same stuff, I mean, it, he passed it down to his sons who passed it down to their sons and daughters who passed it all the way down to me and you. That same sinful, rotten to the core, deserving of damnation DNA, it, it, it rests in your heart and in mine. And we stand condemned. That's what Scripture teaches The woman that you gave me. And then he looks at the woman and he goes, what do you have to say? Well, it was the serpent. (laughs) It wasn't me. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything wrong. The serpent that you created. See? Blame shifting. And ultimately it all will find its way back to God. And so here's what the fall teaches us. Number one, the image of God is still there, but it's been horribly distorted. Think about looking at your reflection in a badly broken mirror. If you've ever wondered, how can I see beauty and ugliness and oftentimes see them in the same person? That's why. That's exactly why. Because that person still created an image. of Adolf Hitler was created in the image and likeness of God. He was. Osama bin Laden. Saddam Hussein. Created in the image and likeness of God. And all three of them needed to die. Because the image of God had been horribly mangled. Number two, disobedience has a harsh penalty. It has temporary penalties. It also has eternal penalties. The temporary penalties are delineated here in the the book of Genesis. For the woman, you're going to have pain in childbirth. Sorry, ladies. But that's a reminder that every child born after the fall is born in sin. For the guys, 
work now becomes toilsome. Sometimes there's this myth that runs around among the dudes, especially lazy ones, that work as a result of the curse. It's not. Laziness, slothfulness, deadbeat dads, that kind of nonsense, that's a result of the curse. Gentlemen, God made you to work, and he made you to work hard. He made us to work hard. He made us to provide for our families. It's the way He built us so that we could shoulder the load and burden and do it to great glory. And that's what Adam did in the garden until the fall. And now thorns and thistles. So the fall isn't the reason you have a job. The fall is the reason you sometimes hate your job. And then, ultimately, there's death. Not just physical, although we're reminded of that every time there's a funeral. We've had two this week. Lost uh, two One in our church family, I preached that one earlier this week. I was at one last night. And every single time there's a moment like that, it should remind us it was not supposed to be this way. There's a reason there's tears at a graveside. Because there wouldn't be tears if there weren't death. And there wouldn't be death if there weren't sin. It was not supposed to be this way. And ultimately, without God doing something for us, that penalty is eternal death. Which means separation from Him. And apart from God doing something to save us, we are separated from Him forever. That's the fall. And thank God it doesn't end there. Movement number three is redemption. See, in the midst of all the sadness, the shame, the fear, and the guilt and condemnation, there is a light of hope even in that moment. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity, that is warfare, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Some of your translations may, instead of offspring, it may have seed. And you can see that's a little of what Terry's painting up here. He shall bruise your head, which is um, ultimate condemnation of the snake. And you shall bruise his heel. So this seed that comes is going to be wounded somehow. There's going to be some warfare that's going to take place. But there's going to be an ultimate triumph of this seed over the seed of the serpent. This is God's way of saying... I'm going to send somebody to fix this. Even though you have shaken your fist in my face and trampled my laws under your feet, I'm not going to leave it this way. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to leave you under condemnation. I'm going to fix this. And I'm going to send somebody who's going to fix this. And the rest of the storyline of the Bible becomes about God keeping His promise to send that individual. That's the rest of it. So this picture stays up here for the remainder of it to call us back to what the story is about. So whether we're in the flood like we're going to look at next week or Abraham and the patriarchs like the week after that or the Passover or or, or some other period in Israelite history or some period in the New Testament, all of it now is going back to this promise, this seed of the woman that's going to emerge. And God says, I'm going to bring somebody And they're going to fix this. And we see a picture of how this happens in verse 21. It says there, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Now, you don't make a garment of skin without something dying, do you? So what just happened here? In verse 15, we see that first gospel, that first promise, and I'm going to send somebody to fix it. Here in verse 21, we see a a slight glimmer into how God is going to bring this about. He takes those fig leaves. He's like, looking, like, get those off. I got something better for you. I have something sufficient for you. He made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Think about that for just a second. 
Remember the, the promise? In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But Adam's not going to die today. Because God has made another to die in his place. And in killing that animal and clothing Adam and Eve in the skin of that animal, we are taught two things. Number one, what they did for themselves, the sewing together of fig leaves, is insufficient to earn God's forgiveness. And that's true of us as well. Outside of God doing something on our behalf, you have no hope and neither do I. None. Here's the, same, here's the second thing we learn. The unwavering, non-negotiable penalty for sin is death. You know why that is? The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 9.22. Under the law, go back to Hebrews. Go back to the previous slide. Under the law, well, I'll just read it from here. Under the law, well, I'll find it here in a second. Oh, there we go. All right, thanks. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Look at the last line of there. Without the shedding of blood. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Death. We finite beings have offended an infinite. There's only one just response for that. Just one. And that's death. So what do we learn from the fall? Number one, or from this idea of redemption. Number one, we cannot cover our sin. Number two, nothing we do is sufficient. Nothing. It doesn't matter how many. You give us all your money, and we'd appreciate it. But it's not going to get you anywhere with God. You can be baptized every week from now until you die or until Jesus comes back. It does nothing to earn you favor with God. Your religious works, your righteousness, you can pack your schedule with all kinds of religious crap and go to hell. None of that matters. None of that. It's all fig leaves being sewed together without a substitute. Now, with that substitute, those things can mean a lot. But without a substitute, there's nothing you can do. So nothing you can do is sufficient. You can't cover your sin. Number three, either our sin is absorbed in a substitute or it is required at our own hands. And we pay for it for all eternity. One or the other. That's what this narrative teaches us. Number four, it teaches us this. God isn't just your creator. He's also your redeemer. He didn't just create you for His glory. Everything that He's promised in this original narrative and the way that it will unfold demonstrates that He loves you immeasurably. And that brings us to the final thing. And that's restoration. Chapter 3, verse 24 says, He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. Ever since our first parents rebelled, every other human being who's been born has been born outside of that garden. Everybody. And our lives are diminished as a result. They're less than what they could be as a result. Because we're born without intimate relationship with God. That intimate relationship that we were supposed to have. But then the cherubim here give us a sense of what is coming. Sometimes we're wondering, what is a cherub? They're going to put the picture up here. These are some spooky looking dudes. These are fiery guardians. I mean, they are scary looking. You get a real sense of what a cherub looks like, you will never again think of a precious moments doll when you think of an angel. 
Okay? These are tough, scary, frightening, kill you without making a mess. That's who these people are. But here's the good news about their presence. Even though it's frightening, even though it's intimidating, as it should be, every time you see them, their presence is associated with the presence of God. Every single time. When we get to the, the Jewish Ark of the Covenant, we'll talk about that with the two of them on top of the ark and the significance of that and what that means. You'll see that more clearly. But for now, the cherub are the presence of God. So when you see that cherub in this story standing at the gate, guarding the way, you need to see, yeah, we're blocked from it for now. But that's not the only thing you need to see. Verse 24 says, it doesn't say He blocks us from it forever. It says He is there to guard the way. Now take a look at this passage in Revelation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That cherub's not just there to keep us out now. That cherub is there so that through the blood and the resurrection of Jesus, one day you and I will go back there and he'll be guarding the way to make sure we don't get lost. And in that moment, everything will be set back right. See, sin didn't just affect you and me. It affected our relationships. It affected societal structures. It affected all of creation. Paul in Romans 8 talks about all of creation kind of collapsing in on itself. Uh, this is why there's natural evil like hurricanes and tornadoes and all kinds of things that tear our lives apart and it doesn't even seem to make any sense. It's why there's moral evil. There's murderers and rapists and all kinds of horrible things. There's disease that hits us. And yet one day there's no more cancer, there's no more heart disease, there's no more diabetes, there's no more nearsightedness. I won't need my contact lenses in heaven. I won't need to preach from a tablet because I've got to have something backlit up here under all these lights in order to talk to you. None of that's going to be needed because Joel's going to be set back right. He's going to look the way he's supposed to look. My gut's going to be gone. Right? That's going to just so be awesome. Right? But it's all these things. I'm going to be perfect one day. And so will you. If you follow Jesus, that's the destiny that we're headed to. And not only will you and I be perfect, but all of the created order is going to be perfect. And we see just a glimmer of that right here. He's guarding the way. The end is coming and it ends well. It ends well for those who believe God, for those who put their faith in this seed. It ends incredibly well. So while we're first separated from God... Here we see. It's not always going to be that way. Here's the application. Number one, we have a lot to look forward to. Number two, we have a lot of work to do. See, all those areas of life that have been affected by the fall, if you're a law enforcement officer, you see that every day. If you're a public school teacher, you see that every day. And you need to go to work tomorrow morning understanding that civil justice is the domain of Jesus. He's Lord of it or over it. You need to go to work tomorrow understanding that education is Jesus' domain. He is Lord over it. Agriculture, science and technology, health care, civil society, art, media, press, Everything that exists in this world that makes society go and moves it forward, it belongs to Jesus. And there is coming a day. We see just a glimmer of it here. We'll see even more of it as we move through the rest of the story where Christ is going to come back and everything's going to work exactly the way it's supposed to. And it'll be that way for the rest of eternity. That's the great hope of this story. And again, all of it is found in these first three chapters of Genesis. This is the story of God and it's the story of us. And over the next six months, we're going to see this story unfolded. 
This story tells you where you came from. You were created in God's image and likeness. This story tells you what your purpose is to bring ultimate glory to your Creator. And your existence alone does this. This story tells you what is wrong. You are separated from God because of your sin and rebellion. And the world collapses in on itself because that's true of everybody else as well. This story gives you the solution. God sent one whose name we will know as we move through this narrative. His name is Jesus. To absorb the penalty for your sin. And it gives you the relationship with God that you were always destined to have and cannot fulfill your purpose without. And this story invites you to be an agent to the whole world of the very redemption that you have been offered. Do you believe this story? Would you like to be a part of this story? God invites you into that right now. Will you bow with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this marvelous account of human history and how it explains so much. And all the other stories that we're going to see in Scripture, how they connect to this one big one. That you are redeeming the entire cosmos back to yourself, Lord. Thank you for that. And thank you for including that in us. In us. We'll see next week from the flood. You could, have, you could have done that to the rest of us. You could have killed Noah as well. He wasn't deserving. No one in this world is. And you could have let him go. And you could have started all over. But you just weren't going to do it. Not because we somehow deserve it or earn it. But because you made a promise back in the garden. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And you were going to keep that promise. You did keep that promise. And for people gathered here today, Father, I just pray that they embrace that with all of their might, that they give their lives to you. I pray that in Christ's name.